Daniel chapter 6, pick me up in verse 1. Let me just read the story to you. Um, Even if you didn't grow up in the church, chances are you may be faintly familiar with this story. Here we go. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Make note of this phrase, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. I love verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plead before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, That's right. The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, notice this subtlety, Oh, who is one of the exiles from Judah. There's a little subtle racism there. Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed, according to Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, I'm good. (laughs) It's kind of what the Aramaic O king, live forever. May God, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. God's able to handle your haters. Daniel didn't have to say anything. God took care of them. One clap. Thank you. They, their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is going to sound familiar when we were in chapter 4. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Wow. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're new with us today, we've been in a series that we're wrapping up called God at Work. We're looking at this idea of faith and work. Uh, We've been talking a lot about it over the last couple of weeks that we've been together. Uh, One of the first bombs we kind of dropped on you that just messed up your retirement plans is that work is not a fruit of the fall. So this whole notion that I'm just going to bust it for 30 years and then shuffleboard my way or cruise my way into the kingdom... um, Because work is not a fruit of the fall, bombshell, Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that's as good as it gets in your Bible until the end of Revelation. What is man doing in Genesis 1 and 2? He's working so that uh, it's not beyond the pale to suggest that when we get to heaven, you'll get a job. I knew you wouldn't clap on that. The difference is, though, is that it will be uh, without thorns and thistles. That comes after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So that God has gifted us with work, and it is to be done for his glory and for human flourishing. But here we tow a line, and I want to kind of uh, look into this this morning, and that is work is a good thing. It is a good gift from God given to us for human flourishing, but work is to never be a sense of identity or something that we turn to for meaning, value, and significance in life. Remember, the idea of idolatry is idolatry takes anything, even good things, and makes them ultimate things. So whenever we turn to work to try to meet a need that only God can give us, we will find ourselves woefully dissatisfied with work. Work will never be able to scratch you where your soul itches. That's God's job. Uh, One woman found this out the hard way. Most of us in this room have heard of um, uh, one of the best female groups of all time, Destiny's Child. They've set all kinds of records. They've made all kinds of money at the height of their fame. Uh, There's a woman, and she's been very public about this. She's a Jesus-loving woman, a woman by the name of Michelle Williams. Uh, She talks about at the height of their fame. Here she is, a part of this group, and she gets diagnosed with depression. She finally, as they're about to go on tour, 
she confesses and confides in her manager. I just want you to understand I'm depressed. And he kind of dismisses her. What do you have to be depressed about? You're, you're making millions of dollars. Your new album just came out. You're going to go on tour now, about to go on tour, where you're going to walk out onto a stage, and you're going to have all these screaming, adoring fans practically worshiping you. What are you depressed about? And she pretty much said, bless his heart. He just doesn't get it that no amount of fame, no amount of celebrity, no amount of any of this can truly satisfy me. This is exactly, and you hear me talk about this often, because I think we in the Bay Area, one of our unique idols is the idol of work and production and success. I tell you this all the time, that when people came to the United States, they initially came to the East Coast, and they came for religious reasons. That's not why they came to the West Coast. They came here for gold. So I want you to understand something. The Bible talks about principalities and powers. There is a realm, an invisible realm we do not see. Ephesians 6.12 says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are satanic influences everywhere, and they are alive and well in the bay. There is a spirit of mammon here. And unless you understand that, you will never be able to navigate what we're going to talk about here. And so one of the things I want you to understand here is many people come to the Bay with all these dreams, and they want to get this thing going. They want to get it started. And so they work, 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 work to, 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 to get to the level in which they think they'll get to. And maybe they finally get there and realize they're not truly fulfilled. I was playing golf not too long ago, and I, I got paired with an individual, um, and he looked pretty young, and uh, round about hole six, I says, man, uh, how old are you? He says, I'm 30-something years old. What do you do for a living? Oh, I just retired. <laughs> he did the startup, took it public, made his millions, cashed out, and now he's playing 36 holes a day. But he's not fulfilled. <laughs> This is exactly the book of Ecclesiastes. Here is Solomon, a billionaire, several times over. He's, listen, he built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I want you to just wrap your mind around that. And what does he say as he looks to the rearview mirror of his life, and specifically when he looks on his work, here's what he says. Look at it with me. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The idea of vanity, Hebrew word habel, it means empty. It's like he's looking at the Taj Mahal going, I built that, and it didn't satisfy me. And one of the questions I have when, it, when I get to heaven, it took him seven years to build the temple, one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world, and 13 years to add an addition to his house. I want to ask him, what kind of addition was that? And he looks at all this stuff, and he says, empty. Now, again, I know what you're saying. Can I find that out on my own? <laughs> Let me draw my own conclusion from that. But here he is just kind of scanning everything. In fact, in another passage in Hebrews, in, in Ecclesiastes, he says, listen, I'm working, working, working. One day I'm going to die. Someone's going to come in and enjoy all of my labor. And he says, this also is emptiness. He's not saying we shouldn't work. He's saying we shouldn't look to work to try to fulfill us. That we've got to put some gospel distance between what I do and who I am. And that's exactly where you're at. 
Some of you may not believe this. Um, so uh, let's play a little game of Jeopardy. Uh, Alex, I'll take, um, I'll take uh, depressed preachers for $500. Now you would think if there's any profession out there where you would just find this, just this sense of satisfaction and meaning in life, it would be in declaring the word of God. But there's a guy in church history by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He pastored a church in London in the 1800s, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Here's this guy, thousands upon thousands come every Sunday to hear him preach, pastored one of the first mega churches in modern history, and yet... Often on Sunday afternoons, Charles Spurgeon is sitting by the fire at dealing with what he called melancholy, what we would call depression. Wait a minute, Spurgeon. You just saw many come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're one of the greatest preachers of all time. In fact, your nickname is the Prince of Preachers, and you're down? Well, let's take miserable comedians for 750 bucks. Talk about an oxymoron. Their job is to make you laugh, to have fun, and yet if you just look at comedians, they're some of the most miserable people to walk the face of the earth. Robin Williams kills himself. Richard Pryor addicted to drugs. What are we saying here? They're not finding fulfillment in what they do. Or let's take angry athletes. I just had lunch not too long ago with a guy who's recently retired from the NFL. He's headed to the Hall of Fame for sure. And I said to him at lunch, I said, man, when you played, you played with such passion. Where did that passion come from? And he corrected me. He says, Pastor, that wasn't passion. That was anger. He said, I still never got over the fact that my dad never showed up at my games as a kid. Well, wait a minute. You're making millions of dollars headed to the Hall of Fame. And you're not satisfied? Friends, that's you. Some of you, you're, you're just working the dream job. I mean, you, you go home to visit, and, and your mom is like, go ahead, baby, tell them what you do. Just, just, just tell them what you do. Tell them, tell them who you work for. And yet the truth of the matter is you pull up at these places, and even though you may be eating for free and all that good stuff. You go through stretches where you're like, this ain't all that is cracked up to be. Don't you understand? Some of you are going to dream schools that turn down a vast percentage of people who apply. You got in, and some days you pull up, you're like, oh, community college kind of sounds good right now. <laughs> I think I've beaten a dead horse. Your work... What you do will never satisfy the deep longings of your heart. Check that box. But when we come to Daniel, he's the picture of fulfillment. But what's clear is what fulfills Daniel is not his work. His work is merely an extension, the overflow of his walk with God. That's what we see in Daniel. We come now to Daniel chapter 6, and it's a change in kings. In fact, one of the subplots of the book of Daniel is changing kings, but an unchanging God. 
Here is Daniel, another king comes across the scene. It's Darius. He's the, he's the head of the, uh, of the Persian Empire here, and they're doing a, a, a reorganization here in Daniel chapter 6. Darius says, uh, I've got to do a, a restructuring of the kingdom, and so uh, I want to set over the 120 territories. I want to set over each one a satrap. The idea of the word satrap simply means protector of the kingdom. What a satrap does was he would, um, uh, uh, he would collect tribute, he would take money in a given area and make sure that that tribute got to where it should be, the king. Now, because satraps dealt with money, their job led to a lot of impropriety. To keep them accountable, Darius wants three high officials, one to manage about 40 satraps each, to make sure the money gets to where it should be. Of these three, we see Daniel. Daniel, the text tells us, is flourishing and doing such a phenomenal job that Darius has plans to promote him over all the kingdom. Word slips out that this is what Darius is planning, and his colleagues don't like it. They decide to conspire against him. They don't like the fact that this Jew, this immigrant, is about to get promoted. So they do everything they can to keep him from getting the promotion. Let me just send you a quick text message. Come to your neighborhood, sit in your house, put my feet up on your coffee table. And I want you to understand that one of the secondary implications of this text is, is that not everybody in your life can handle your success. It is a hard lesson of life. You have to be careful who you share your triumphs with. Envy and jealousy are real things. Not everybody is going to rejoice with you. In fact, there's going to be some people in your life who grieve when you rejoice and who rejoice when you grieve. They will be your haters. They can't handle the fact that you got the new job. They can't handle the fact you got the new promotion. They can't handle the fact that you bought that house. They can't handle your success. So please be discerning over who you share the major movements of God in your life with. So here we see them conspiring. They decide that what they're going to do is they're, they're going to treat Daniel like a politician and completely vet him to find some dirt on him. Uh, they, they talk to all the women he works with. They want to know, has he said anything inappropriate? Has he said anything that could be misconstrued? They've checked his Facebook, his social media platforms from the day in which he launched out on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. You know, I'm just kind of reading the white spaces of the text here. And they want to know, has he tweeted out anything? Has he posted any picture? Has he done anything, said anything that was inappropriate? They cannot find anything. They check his expense reports. After all, he deals with money. They want to no, is he being funny with the money? Is there anything questionable? They can find nothing, nada, zilch. So they said, if we're going to get this guy, we're going to have to get him in his relationship with God. Ain't that amazing? Imagine if all your coworkers looked for dirt on you. What would they find? Exasperated, they said, we can't get anything on this guy except for his relationship with God. 
They go to Darius and they say, Darius, if anybody is caught worshiping or praying to another god but you, which means they view Darius as a god, establish a law that over the next 30 days, if they're caught, they get thrown into the lion's den. What is Daniel's response? Look again with me at verse 10. Daniel hears about this, and it says that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. Now, here's what you need to understand here. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, we must connect it to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 50. Here in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and here's what he says. God, if because of your people's sin, you send them away from the land, if they are exiles, may they, wherever they're at, pray towards Jerusalem. And when they pray towards Jerusalem, may you hear and bring them back. Here is Daniel, 80-something years of age. This is a regular rhythm of his life. He is just walking in the word of God, faithful to the word, throws open the blinds. He knows the document has been signed. Now, me, I'd like to believe I'd pray this. I might close the blinds. I might pray in the bathroom. I might do something. Not Daniel. Daniel doesn't punk out. 80-something years old. Three times a day. And, and by the way, everything in the text suggests they knew exactly where to find Daniel. <laughs> There's no compromise. See, what we understand here is, is that his work, again, was the overflow of his relationship with God. All of us in our homes now, we, I'm guessing we have a wireless Internet connection. In fact, some of us have changed our viewing habits. Maybe we've canceled cable and now we stream everything that we watch. Right? We, we stream Netflix, shows on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever it may be. In order for those platforms to work, they've got to be in connection and communication with a source outside of themselves. There must be constant communication if that platform was going to work and flourish to the degree in which it should. Daniel's work flourishes, not just because he relies on skills or his degree, but he's connected to the wireless router that is a holy God. He's in constant communication. This is exactly what it should be as Christians. In fact, in John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus, in an upper room, says this to his disciples, Abide in me. The idea of the word abide is minnow, it is remain, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's what he's saying. Your work will never be as fruitful as I've ordained it to be unless you are abiding in me. Please understand here, John is writing in Greek, and the Greek, Greek, Greek word for abide, it's minnow, it's remain, it's stay connected. It is more than quiet times. See, I, I want to go to war with a quiet time mentality that pretty much says I can take one big deep breath with God in the morning and hold that breath throughout the day. That's not how it works. Why? Because you will find yourself leaking throughout the day. So you'll, you'll be in the Word in the morning. It's a rich time of reading God's Word and praying maybe for 15 minutes, half hour, hour maybe. Rich time, wonderful time. Then you'll get on the 280 freeway. Somebody will cut you off. Leak. 
little Holy Spirit just leaks out. Then you'll go to line at Pete's or Starbucks or Phil's, whatever it may be, your favorite coffee shop, and, 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 and here you are filled with the Holy Spirit. A little bit's leaked out already on the 280. It's left there at 280. And, and, and the person in front of you, God bless their heart, they're ordering coffee for their whole uh, floor. A little bit more Holy Spirit leaks out. Okay. Uh, then on your way out, you've got your drink, and someone steps on your new shoes. A little bit more Holy Spirit leaks out. Then you get to the office and the person next to you is just kind of being rude and a little bit more Holy Spirit. You haven't even made it to lunch and all the Holy Spirit been just been left on the 280 at Phil's Coffee all over the place. And you completely in the flesh all that afternoon. What do we find Daniel doing? Daniel understands this three times a day. He just goes for Phillips. This is what the Bible means when it says pray without ceasing. In other words, Paul's just saying, prayer just has to be how you roll. See, I don't have to say to you, breathe without ceasing. (laughs) That's just how you roll. Short breaths, short breaths, short breaths, short breaths. So coming home from work, I often pray this. God, fill me up with what I need to engage my family well. Short breaths. Abide. What happens when we're abiding in Christ? What impact should that play? Three quick things. Three quick things. When Daniel is, is, is walking with God, he's connected with God, what does that impact? Number one, it impacts his work. The Bible says they could find no fault in Daniel because an excellent spirit was in him. Do you see the connection between the fact that he's working well and he's staying plugged in to God, that's, that's the connection. That's why I'm constantly on you. I'm constantly on myself. The greatest thing as a believer you bring to the workplace is not the letters behind your name. It is your walk with Christ. <laughs> Secondly, what does it impact? Let me hang out a little bit here. It impacts his person. Please notice the juxtaposition. Some shouting stuff right here. Notice what happens. They play Darius. What's obvious is, reading Daniel 6, Darius loves Daniel. This isn't his enemy. Everything about the text says he didn't want to throw him in there. They play Darius. Darius has no idea that they're colluding against Daniel. He goes ahead and signs the document for 30 days. It can't be revoked. They come back to him and say, oh, your boy Daniel violated him. He's realized he's been playing. He's trying everything he can to find some legal loophole. He can't find it. Daniel gets thrown in. Now notice the juxtaposition. Notice what happens that night. Here's Darius in the palace, but he can't rest. He's worried filled with anxiety in the palace. First thing in the morning, he gets up, rushes down there, shouts out, Daniel, has your God delivered you? Daniel from the lion's den says, I'm good. Everything about it is Daniel's in the lion's den, the picture of peace, while Darius has been in the palace filled with worry. I want you to understand your sense of peace is never found in your circumstances. 
You can be rich and prosperous and miserable. But peace is only found where God is. I love the game of golf. In fact, when I pastored in Memphis, uh, one of our members owned a country club and gave our family a, a membership just for free. Um, all we had to do was pay a $25 a month uh, membership fee, and then, uh, I mean, everything was covered for except for our food, which, by the way, when Miles, who loves golf too, when he was about six or seven, I used to drop him off over the summer. He played nine holes with his friends. Then, So w- one time over the summer, I noticed, this has nothing to do with, about to, with what I'm about to say, by the way. I, I, I got my bill one, one, one month, and it was $600 in food charges. And it's peanut butter and jelly, chicken tenders, peanut butter and jelly, chicken tenders, peanut butter and jelly, chicken tenders. I said, Miles, are you comping your friends? Because he had the number. Oh, yeah, Dad, yeah, yeah, just don't do that. I don't know why I share that with you. Let's just go on. So <laughs> I love the game of golf. And uh, anything, if you, if you spent time down south or in the Midwest, you understand there's this thing called thunderstorms. Californians don't really know about that. But anyways, um, in, in, in down south and in the Midwest, just out of the blue, these thunderstorms can just pop up. Just out of the blue. And so this is a real danger on the golf course because you could be playing, all of a sudden these thunderstorms would pop up. So here's what our golf course did. They set up shelters throughout the golf course. And they were made of special material that if the thunder and lightning hit it, nothing would happen. So that when they blew the horn telling you thunder and lightning's here, we would all as golfers just book it to one of these shelters. And and I, I could just tell you many times, thunder and lightning and rain beating down all around us, but we're in the shelter laughing, telling jokes, having a great time, the picture of peace. Why? Because we are in the shelter and in the middle of the storm. You know, if you read Psalms, what Psalms says about this, Psalm 16, verse 1, the psalmist says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The idea of refuge is shelter. Or later on in Psalm 46, the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. The psalmist says, when, when trouble comes, I'm going to get to God because where God is, there's peace. The disciples should have known this. There's a story in the New Testament. Here are the disciples. These are expert fishermen when all of a sudden a thunderstorm shows up and they are freaking out in the boats while Jesus is sleeping. I just flew in last night from Charlotte and we hit two rough patches of turbulence. I hate turbulence. But whenever turbulence happens, you know what I do? I look to the flight attendants. If they still serving their Biscoff cookies, I'm good. But Lord have mercy, don't let them sit down and strap in and get a look like this is new. If I look to the flight attendants and they're okay, I'm okay. Here's the disciples. They're in the boat in the middle of the storm. They should have looked not to the storm but look to the Jesus who is sleeping in the storm. Some of you are going through storms, and peace is where God is. While everybody else is freaking out on your job, may you walk in clothed with the peace of Christ. Let's go home on this one.
Oftentimes, Daniel 6 is preached primarily as, be faithful, trust God. You might get thrown in the, in the lion's den, but pray to God and God will rescue you. Eh. Eh. That's a very American understanding of the text. An American understanding pretty much makes Daniel the hero. Daniel's not the hero. God is. I want you to understand you're not the hero in the play that is about the glory of God. At best, you're a two-bit extra. You ain't even a subplot. See, in order to understand this, listen, you cannot understand your Bibles unless you understand Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's the Abrahamic covenant. I need you to get this in your spirit. God shows up to Abraham and says, you're going to be the father of my people, the father of what we know, know to be Israel. He says, I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Here's the punchline. And through you, the people of God in the Old Testament Israel, I am going to bless the whole world. Daniel is a fulfillment of a promise that was made many years before. Here is God sending this exiled Jew into a foreign land. And against all worldly odds, God uses Daniel as a vehicle of his blessings to bless Babylon and Persia. And we see two pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, Darius in chapter 6, praising God because of the influence of Daniel. The ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Jew, the ultimate God Jew, who took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived the life that we could never have lived, died the death we should have died, and on a cross paid for every sin we've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit, separated them as far as the east is from the west, was buried in a borrowed tomb, resurrected the third day, and he saved you... Not just for you to have a nice car, not just for you to have a big house, not just for you to have a lot of money in your bank account, but he saved you and dropped you in the Babylon of the Bay. If you think you're here just to make money, you've blown it. Unless you have a missional exile mentality. Daniel always knew, this is not my home, this is not my home, this is not my home, this is not my home. I'm on assignment, I'm on assignment, I'm on assignment. I represent God, I represent God, I represent God. Listen, the bay will eat you alive. If you came here thinking, I'm, I'm going to give this a good hard shot, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to buy me a house, whatever, and, and, and it's not working out, you're going to go back to Nashville. Charlotte, Atlanta, where you can buy a 5,000-square-foot house for $20. You're going to do that. <laughs> but I want to plead with you. If we're going to reach the bay, we need godly Daniels and Daniels who lift their eyes above homeownership, cars, clothes, who actually say, this is my mission field. Wrap your minds around this concept. 
at most 3% of everybody in the Bay today is going to church, which means three out of 100 people in Mountain View are coming to church. In Kenya, 44 out of 100 today are going to church. What's the bigger mission field? So we don't need you to put on matching T-shirts and go to a third world country. I hate that phrase. To do over there what you're not doing here. We need people who live on mission and who see their job as a mission field, their school, their frat house as a mission field to advance the purposes of God. Come on, praise team. Listen. But don't you understand one more thing? Daniel 6 is the gospel. There was another man who was colluded against. His name was Jesus. They tried to find dirt on him. But they could find nothing in him. So they ended up lying on him. And like Daniel, he was buried in his own lion's den, the grave. And like Daniel, God stepped in and pulled him up out of the grave. And what God did for Jesus, he wants to do for you by giving you new life. Could it be, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, could it be the reason why you're here is there's an alarm clock in your soul that says something's missing. And what's missing is Jesus. So, Father, we bless you in this place today. We thank you. We're not the hero. You are. We don't live ultimately for ourselves. We live for you. God, you're not our administrative assistant. You are our CEO. We do our work, as Paul said, as unto the Lord. So, Father, would you give us a missional mindset that we would live in such a way here in the bay that we live for your glory, for your purposes. There's a sense of resignation in our spirits that, that says like Jesus did, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And now, Father, would you save someone's soul today? We pray in the name of Jesus. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, for that person who has been saved by you, but their priorities have been out of whack and work has been elevated to the place of deity, would you realign our priorities and our perspectives? May we live like Daniel, constantly abiding in you, constantly seeking your face so that there's no dichotomy between who I am on Sunday and who I am on Monday. To that end, Lord God, God, I'm just so sick and tired of the enemy having his way in the bay. I know that can't be your will. So, God, would you be lifted up here in the bay? Would you breathe on the bay area, Father, in the name of Jesus?